This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Hi, and welcome to the Alcoholics Anonymous radio show here on Plains FM 96.9. My name is Louise and I'm an alcoholic. The purpose of this show is to increase public awareness of Alcoholics Anonymous as an effective means of recovery from the disease of alcoholism. Our show has two parts. First, we'll talk a bit about alcoholism, what it is and what AA can do to help. Then we'll interview a recovering alcoholic who is an active member of AA. I'm now going to ask our guest to read the AA preamble, which is read at the start of every AA meeting. Alcoholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength and hope with each other that they may solve their common problem and help others to recover from alcoholism. The only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. There are no dues or fees for AA membership. We are self-supporting through our own contributions. AA is not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organisation or institution, does not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorses nor opposes any causes. Our primary purpose is to stay sober and help other alcoholics to achieve sobriety. So what is alcoholism? Alcoholism is a disease, not a disgrace. There's no shame in having an illness or a disease. An unusual feature of this disease is that it will do whatever it can to convince you that you do not have it. However, once it has a hold of you, the progression of symptoms is like the classic disease model and the victim is as helpless as a sufferer of cancer. If you are an alcoholic, you're at the beginning of a long road that usually ends in one of three places – prisons, institutions or death. If you think this sounds dramatic, we can assure you that our collective experience has shown this to be true. The challenge is to convince the alcoholic to admit that they need help and become willing to seek it. Denial is a major symptom of alcoholism. The alcoholic is often the last one to recognise it and admit that they have it. Our definition of alcoholism is it is an allergy of the body coupled with an obsession of the mind. The allergy is the physical aspect of the disease. After having the first drink, the phenomenon of craving develops and we lose control over when we will stop drinking. The old saying is one is too many and a thousand is never enough. And yet, because of the obsession of the mind, the mental aspect of the disease The alcoholic is compelled to keep picking up the first drink. And this is what makes us powerless. We often hear from sober alcoholics that many doubted whether life could be fun without alcohol. Fortunately, those same people report that their lives have improved dramatically since they became sober. The 12-step program of recovery, which is discussed at meetings and which is outlined in the Alcoholics Anonymous Big Book, is how we get sober and maintain our sobriety one day at a time. This program has a proven track record of helping 
otherwise hopeless alcoholics to achieve long-term sobriety and recovery. It has taught us how to enjoy life sober. Okay, for anyone who has just joined us, you're listening to the Alcoholics Anonymous radio show here on Plains FM 96.9, and we're just about to interview an AA member who's going to share their experience with alcoholism. So welcome to the show. Let's meet our guest. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yep, my name's um, Alex, an alcoholic. Hi, Alex. Welcome to the show. And would you like to tell us a little bit more about who you are uh, and how long have you been sober? Uh, yeah, I'm nearly up to 30 years, a couple wow. of months away from my 30 year anniversary. Amazing, Alex. And um, tell us a little bit about life outside of AA. Um, do you work? Oh, I'm just, uh, I had a bit of a hobby business before the lockdowns and that sort of killed it so I'm just in the process of trying to build that up again. Sure, sure. And um, family? Yeah, I, I live alone but I've got some adult children and some younger children as well. Wonderful, wonderful. And um, you, where did you grow up? Are you, are you from Christchurch? Uh, no, I was born in Taramanui but I'm, I was brought up in Invercargill and then moved here as an adult. Wow, brilliant. Oh, well, thank you for joining us. Let's talk about, you know, why we're here and um, when did you start drinking and how did it progress? Um, I'm from one of those families that <clears throat> the parents thought it was cool to give their kids shandies when they were kids. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, obviously, I don't, I don't remember getting drunk as a kid, but um, I remember enjoying shandies a lot. Yeah. And looking forward to the next time that my parents were drinking, so we get to drink some shandies. Um, and for anybody that doesn't know what a shandy is, it's a mixture of beer and lemonade. Yeah. Um, and <clears throat> you know the drinking culture was quite strong in my family. Mm, mm. But um, you know, I, I was lucky that the, um, the there was not a lot of violence from my parents, mm-hmm. even though there's a lot of other family members in my family mm. that were violent aggressive alcoholics. Mm, okay, so you've come from a, a family where it's all around you. Yep. Um, so tell us about then the first time that you did experience um, the effects of alcohol and what it what it did for you. Um, <clears throat> yeah, my first experience with alcohol wasn't even, uh, as, a, as an actual drinking to get drunk alcohol, it wasn't even a good experience. I was 11 years old. Drinking with my brothers, got really drunk, mouthed off because they're all gang related. Um, got mouthed off at somebody, got knocked unconscious, mm. pissed the bed, puked all over myself, woke up in a cold bath of water the next day. <laughs> so it wasn't a good experience. Mm. But um, <clears throat> but um, yeah, like you know, like you read out um, that disease doesn't care if it was a good time no. because at least I had a numb time. That it, it, absolutely, and, and it's it's um. So, so, so I guess for you, you know, why did you drink? And obviously, that was as a you know very young adolescent. As you progressed into your teens, um, you know, how did it progress? Um, because I was just hanging out with my older brothers who were hideous drug addicts, alcoholics, and yeah, yeah, you know, just did everything that they did. Yeah, you know, sure. By the time I was fourteen, I was binge drinking every weekend, and yeah, you know, even got my own job then because I, you know, I was kicked out of school and all right. that kind of stuff. So I had a job, so that just paid for my booze as a teenager, you know. So, and and I just got more and more 
um, my binges got worse and worse. My violent behaviour got worse and worse. Yep. Yeah, you know, I was I was even at that age. Um, that t-shirt, you know, instant arsehole, just to add alcohol. Wow. As soon as I had a few drinks, I went looking for trouble every and, time. And 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 at such a young age, and so um, you know, drinking with people around you that are obviously drinking the same way. Um, there was never ever a, a moment where you thought this isn't normal, or you had no one say to you this isn't normal. Any of those thoughts? Oh, yeah, I was getting in the trouble with the police at that stage. Okay, as well. so I was actually um, arrested when I was fifteen for quite a violent act, and so I went to the um, system. And um, part of in them days, that I don't know if they do it anymore, but in them days, um, part of the court process was sending potential alcoholics to AA wow. so that was part of one of my sentences was that I had to go to AA meetings and that my sponsor would have to stand up in court wow. when I went to court and say that I'd been attending meetings so I don't think they do it anymore but then it was very common and then and you'd be um, to avoid a jail sentence you'd be sent to rehabilitation okay. centres so I did about five of them in a row in my teens yeah. okay and this is in your teens yeah. okay and so you know those consequences we talk about um, so getting in trouble with the law um, you know in, in, in various forms um, you know what about your mental state your emotional state you know what was that like well I mean this is the disease you know I was, I was in the disease and I knew I was an alcoholic when they sent me to those AA meetings. The first time, AA meeting I ever sat in, I actually just thought, wow, this is me. I'm an alcoholic. I was 15 years old. And I identified then that I was an alcoholic. It didn't stop me drinking, though. That I was just, about I just, to, <laughs> I'd to go, be my next question. Yeah, I'd go to parties and I'd be going, I'm an alcoholic because I'm sculling back my, my drinks. <laughs> and they'd, give, they'd put me on anti-abuse because I was uncontrollable. And I just would pocket the anti-abuse and, never, wow. and not take it because I just didn't want to. I didn't yep. want to stop. No. Nobody's going to make me stop. They no. thought they could make me stop, but they couldn't. You know, I was, in fact, it, it became a competition between me and the social workers and drug and alcohol counsellors <laughs> of whether they could get me to stop or not, oh and me Lord. trying to con my way through the whole system sure, so I could just carry sure. on drinking. And horrendous amounts of drugs as well. I just did everything. And, and um, you know, I'm gonna try, I, you know, I sort of want to ask about your relationship with your family, but I feel like that was part of your... Yeah, my family drank. Yeah. yeah. I did, I did, I went to jail for a short thing when I was about 16. You know, when I get out, my family's waiting there with a bit of dope and mm-hmm. take me off to the pub. And, you know, because when we get out of jail, you know, it's there the, the being the good family member by making sure you get wasted on your first day out. Wow. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so I guess, uh, you know, our environments can, can make it so much harder. Mm. So let's describe, I want you to describe for me that, you know, what was it that brought you into the rooms and not, not obviously talking about when you went as a teen, but what you did to decide or what we often describe in AA as our rock bottom. Yeah, I mean, th- this is one of the hard things because as you can sort of tell by a bit of my story, I was already living a rock bottom. <laughs> yeah. So it didn't. It was it was pretty hard. It had to be a bit of an emotional rock bottom. That's what sure. I had to hit. So it was basically, um, you know, so I already knew about AA. Um, I would have little stints of sobriety um, when things got really bad or I was facing the courts or, um, you know, uh, to avoid jail or whatever. And, um, <clears throat> and 
um, and whenever I was on a rehab centre. But then I had um, my oldest child and then I suppose that started to wake me up a little bit more. It didn't okay. stop me at sure. first, but it made me try a little bit harder. So I might get a month or two of not drinking or whatever. Mm-hmm. But, um, even then, you know, the disease in the head um, mm. was very strong. So mm. I'd, I'd often cause fights with my partner just to get her, because you know, we were both in recovery and we'd make a commitment to stay clean and sober. And But you know, I'd, I'd cause big arguments, so mm. she'd go and stay with her mum so I could get on the piss. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, you know, that's that, that was part of my. That was almost a, every two or three month routine. I just couldn't handle. I'd just get more and more irritable. You know, the the disease just um, polluting my brain, getting quite corrupt in the way I thought about things, blaming her for everything that was in my life, and yep. just trying to push her out the door so I could go get drunk again. So what was it then? You know, you've now you've got nearly thirty years of sobriety. What was it that led you to your last drink? Um, well, breaking up with her, it really did you know, because that was my first partner ever. And so breaking up with her was quite emotionally, emotional and it didn't, um, I actually, you know, as much as I drank, <laughs> I couldn't get rid of the despair of what I basically created. I, I woke up to the fact that I was creating my own misery. And that's one of the things I hold to today is that I am responsible for my happiness or my misery. Okay. And that, that was, I suppose that's what woke me up when I was 21 years old. I just thought, I can't do this anymore. So I've got to, and I knew I was going to die. I knew I was going to die if I carried on. I was so violent. I was horrendously violent. I, I was, it, when I hit my rock bottom, it was when I actually couldn't even walk to the shop without fear of somebody attacking me because I'd caused so much trouble in the town I lived in. Wow. So what was it that, you know, did you, well, what did you do from that point? Did you reach out to yeah. AA or uh, other? Yeah, well, I moved to another town and then just tried to get into Hemna. Okay. And then just started going to AA in, in that little town, which was really supportive AA. The, you know, I, I love rural AA fellowships. They're always yeah. really close and really active. And, and basically yep. once they get your hand, their hands on you, they don't let you go. <laughs> <laughs> so okay, really so, so getting into, again, a treatment centre yep. and then really getting in the middle, what we call the middle of the bed, I guess. Yeah, I was really, I was absolutely shattered. My, yep. my, I'd broken every way out that I could think of yeah. yeah and so at this point you were only 21 yeah so young and um, so tell us about then what happened from there you know what were some of the things that were part of your recovery um, in those early days uh, well the you know, the treatment for a start because I was ready I was really ready and I really absorbed um, yep. my, my stint in Queen Mary I really yep. connected with other people that were there that were committed to their recovery and avoided all the guys that are just there because they were told to be sure and just I really made a point of being honest in the in the therapy and you know getting to all the meetings that they made available at the hospital yeah. and so so honesty mm. openness yeah. and willing yeah. willingness yeah. and and becoming part of the fellowship. Yes. So making <clears throat> friends. Yeah, I knew then that I couldn't do it on my own. Yep. That not, you know, not only did I need a higher power, I needed to be part of a fellowship, a community of people that supported me. I'd accepted completely by then, completely broken my will, really, that um, my attempts at trying to live a life mm-hmm. drinking. So, so that was that time really that I had to reach out, and I was very lucky. God really intervened a lot in my early recovery because the scene I was from drinking and drugging was part of our scene so I actually didn't even think that I deserved to get sober sometimes even while I was in 
rehab and then a guy just visited the rehab that I was in that was from the same scene as me. He had two years clean and sober and he said, it's okay, mate. We can get clean. Wow. And sober, yeah. And um, you just touched on a point there. You know, we talk about AA being a spiritual program, not a religious program, and, you know, that there is a power greater than ourselves. What was that like for you and and how... Yeah, what was that like for you in the start, and has that changed? Well, for, I'm I'm one of the people that the big book talks about. Where I actually had a full-on spiritual experience, where God really intervened in my life and took away the withdrawals and everything for about a month. <clears throat> for about a month, I just had a really. That was before I went to the rehab. I just had a, this total serenity and peace, and then <clears throat> when just before I went into the rehab, it ended. And I had to start dealing with my stuff. And it's sure. like I got a clear message from my higher power that it was time for me to do the work to get that reward. Yeah. So, and that's sort of that. So I, you know, I had sort of had that that thing. I knew that I had to do the step work. I knew I had to do the yeah the leg work, even though it was going to be hard and painful. Yeah. And you, you know, you get the messages. You know, the old timers make it clear that it's going to be hard and painful, but it's going to be worth it. And so. And um, you know, sponsorship. That's been something that's yeah. been important to you. Yep, absolutely. But you know, at the beginning, I'd, it, you know, if they told me to do it, I'd do it. And so, you did. You know, I'd, I'd just find the people that I could relate to and make them my sponsor. And sometimes, um, you know, they'd actually become a really close friend, mm. you know, fairly mm. quickly actually. And then I'd just get another sponsor because sure. I, I did need to have some kind of detachment from my sponsors. Yeah. So after thirty years of sobriety, what are some of the things that you do, you know, to help you cope with? Life on life term, you know, we call it life on life's terms or or difficulties. Um, <clears throat> I do, if I'm having difficulties, I do do more meetings. Mm-hmm. Um, I will pick up um, probably more more vigorous step work, you know, because I do go to, through the basic steps every day, but sometimes you really need to get and maybe hook into doing um, many fourth steps and mm-hmm. stuff like mm-hmm. that to deal with some stuff that's coming up. Because even at thirty, yeah, nearly thirty years, I've actually started finding some childhood stuff popping up that I'd mm. that I'd never uncovered before. So, got to deal with them, some of that stuff and and some of my own behaviours, you know, because it's it's been a thirty year track of really learning who I am and <clears throat> my part in life. You know, so I'm still looking at some of that stuff. Had little. Um, emotional rock bottoms and you know relationship breakups and and recovery and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, but, and, you know, just and reach out because I have a very um, close network of recovery friends around me. And for me now, you know, I used to hate ringing people, but yeah. now it's just if I feel bad, I just ring one of my mates straight away. That's and that's amazing. The um, I know that that it can be one of the hardest things. It's like. Pick up the phone, mm. reach out, ask for help. We don't have to do it alone. Yeah, that's And right. that's amazing. And, um, uh, you know, explain to us and let us know, you know, what's your life like today? Oh, very good. I mean, I've, I've had a lot of things in the last five years that have been quite um, hard to deal with, but I, mm-hmm. I in general, have a, a light core now. You know, when I've even, even at two years clean and sober I always felt this darkness in me and this mm-hmm. emptiness and loneliness and mm-hmm. as time's gone by my core is happy positive forgiving um, you know go, I go out of my way to make peace with people you know so even if I might have some down times my core is light so when I am struggling I, I still have that core in me that's 
that says, you know, it's okay, you're going to get through it, you've got through it before, just go to a meeting, you know, talk to your friends, all that stuff. So I actually always feel quite fulfilled and I'm quite happy. Um, you know, I, you know, actually, uh, um, my mum died a couple of months ago and that, that was quite devastating for me and I had to feel all those feelings. But, you know, it, it's not life-threatening to me anymore, <laughs> that kind of stuff, because that kind of stuff used to be life-threatening to me. Absolutely. And when, when, in early recovery, I used to often think about suicide and not being able to cope with my feelings. They were too hard. I'd have to take myself out. But even – and I actually made an agreement with myself every day just for today – don't drink, don't kill yourself. If it's shit tomorrow, you can do it tomorrow, but just don't do it today. And I just did that every day until it ended. And now, like I said, I don't have that now. I never think about suicide. I love my life. I love my kids. I have great relationships with my kids. You know, all my kids, my adult kids, my young kids, we're all very close. And, and, that's, and that is the, the gift of, of recovery. Mm. Um, and to deal with those events in life where you haven't had to pick up a drink. Yeah. It's beautiful. That's and I was a mama's boy, so it really affected me. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely, absolutely. And um, I guess, Alex, what what would you recommend for someone who thinks they might have a drinking problem? What are some of the things they could ask themselves? Um, <clears throat> I suppose I, I personally believe it's probably already obvious, <clears throat> and if you and I, I believe that if. Um, if somebody's already justifying some bad behaviour that happens when they're drinking, then they've probably already got an alcohol problem. Mm-hmm. And then it's to explore whether that's an alcohol problem that is, is that they've got the disease of alcoholism or whether they've just a problematic drinker, you know, because the, there is a difference between those people. I've met a lot of those people that they just mm. had some problems and they gave up mm. drinking and they lived a normal life. But, you know, as an alcoholic, if we keep getting in trouble, keep denying our part in it, keep... Um, pretending it's not the alcohol and it's obviously the alcohol, then there's a, pro- there's a real yep. problem you need to get your ass to a meeting. <laughs> and, and I was just about to say, some of the things that they can do to to help them, mm. so go to a meeting. Yeah, make contact, talk to people. Mm-hmm. That's one of the biggest killers of alcoholics is getting to meetings and then isolating and mm-hmm. getting some sobriety up and not talking to people. You know, mm. That's a killer, major killer. Mm. They've got to get into the community, be part of the hub, mm-hmm. not get flicked off the end of the wheel. It's, yeah, that's such amazing. It's it's amazing. Well, Alex, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your story with us. Mm, no, it's awesome. Thank you. <laughs> for our listeners, if you've related to anything that you've heard or would like some more information about Alcoholics Anonymous, you can look us up on the web at www.aa.org.nz or call us on 0800 AA Works. There are over 60 meetings a week in Canterbury, so it's likely there's one near you. Join us next week to hear from more AA members sharing their experiences. Our show airs every Monday at 5.30pm on Plains FM and repeats on Wednesday at 12.30pm. You can also find podcasts of our past shows on the Plains FM website at plainsfm.org.nz or you can download, subscribe and listen to podcasts on iTunes and Spotify. That brings us to the end of the show. Thank you for listening and remember, if you want to drink, that's your business. But if you want to stop, we can help. You don't have to do it alone. We will now close the show with the serenity prayer, as we do in every AA meeting. God, God, grant me the serenity. To to accept accept the things things I I cannot cannot change, change, courage courage to change change the things things I can, 
and wisdom to know the difference. You've been listening to the Alcoholics Anonymous radio show on Plains FM 96.9.